This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. On today's show, I'm going to be talking to Richard Fiddler, who's a member of the Socialist Project in Ottawa, and he's going to chat with us about the first person that has actually been sentenced under Canada's post-9-11 terrorism laws. And I'll have a chat with Brian Evans, who is an associate professor at Ryerson University, and we'll be discussing the economic crisis, specifically how it's playing out in Ontario. And in that same vein, I'm going to be speaking about the economy, the automobile industry to be exact, with Herman Rosenfeld, who is a former educator with CAW and who now teaches labor studies at McMaster University. We'll also have, of course, headlines. And Around the Left in Seven Days. And Music is the Weapon this week featuring... The Mothers. Now for the alert headlines for the week of March 19, 2009. Over 150 Jewish Canadians signed a statement expressing their concerns about the campaign to suppress criticism of Israel that is being carried on within Canada. The signatories include many prominent Canadians. The signatories are particularly concerned that unfounded accusations of anti-Semitism deflect attention from Israel's accountability for what many have called war crimes in Gaza. The group attempted to have their statement published as an opinion piece, but it was rejected by both the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star. Canada's science minister was evasive when asked by the Globe and Mail if he believed in evolution. Some have expressed concern that Gary Goodyear is suspicious of science, perhaps because he is a creationist. The executive director of the Canadian Association of University Teachers said he was flabbergasted that the minister would invoke his religion when asked about evolution. Many scientists fear 10 years of gains will be wiped out by a government that doesn't understand the importance of basic curiosity-driven research. However, a bit later, Goodyear flatly said that he does indeed believe in evolution. He claims he refused to answer the globe question because it was irrelevant and his beliefs have nothing to do with government policy. The Harper government has appointed a longtime Conservative Party member who believes that homosexuality is a sin to the tribunal that decides whether gays get refugee status in Canada. According to a November edition of CanadianChristianity.com, quote, Doug Cryer said the church has the right to say that homosexual behavior is sinful just as it can say that adultery is sinful. It is part of God's teaching, end quote. Cryer was appointed last month by Immigration Minister Jason Kenney to Canada's Immigration and Refugee Board. Among the many grounds a person may be granted refugee status is fear of being hurt or killed in their home country, country for being homosexual. A coalition of national and local water advocacy groups organized an event to highlight the need for federal action to support Canada's public water resources and services. The March 12th event kicked off a series of Paint the Town Blue actions taking place across the country to mark World Water Day. Prominent Canadians joined in for a toast to public water at the event. Maud Barlow, chairperson of the Council of Canadians and senior advisor on water to the president of the UN General Assembly, said that without a national water policy to protect water, we are beginning to see the impacts of a looming water crisis. The Paint the Parliament Building Blue event was organized by the Council of Canadians, the Polaris Institute and the Canadian Union of Public Employees. Turkish police violently attacked a peaceful march by 300 water activists protesting the World Water Forum in Istanbul. Reports indicate that Turkish police used tear gas and water cannons, fired rubber bullets and arrested 17 people, many of whom are now in hospital. Council of Canadians National Chairperson Maud Barlow is also present in Istanbul. She was appalled by the police actions. Blue Planet Project of the Council of Canadians is currently working on a prison action to demand release and are going to question the head of the World Water Council at a press conference. The candidate for a leading U.S. intelligent post withdrew his nomination after accusing the country's Israel lobby of plumbing the depths of dishonor and indecency. 
Charles Freeman withdrew his nomination following what he called a barrage of libelous distortions of his record by the Israel lobby in the U.S. Freeman's withdrawal is being seen as the latest in a string of setbacks for Barack Obama as the president struggles to staff his administration and a stunning victory for the pro-Israel lobby. Freeman said that the inability of the American public to discuss any option opposed by the ruling faction in Israeli politics has allowed that faction to adopt and sustain policies that ultimately threaten the existence of the state of Israel. Premier Wen Jiabo of China declared that he is worried about the safety of U.S. bonds in which China has heavily invested. By buying these bonds, China is essentially bankrolling the gigantic deficits run up by the U.S. government. Economists said Wen's comments reflect fears that higher U.S. budget deficits from Washington's $787 billion stimulus package could drive down the dollar and the value of China's accumulated U.S. Treasury notes. Analysts estimate China keeps nearly half of its $2 trillion in foreign currency reserves in U.S. Treasuries. Israeli industry is beginning to feel the effects of the worldwide boycott-divest sanctions movement directed against the Israeli government in response to its recent massive attack on Gaza. Several Israeli companies received letters from European and U.S. companies explaining that they cannot invest in Israel for moral reasons. So far, deals have been cancelled with Turkey, the U.K., Egypt and the Gulf states, and visits by economic delegations have been called off. A Turkish company demanded that Israeli companies sign a document condemning the Israeli massacre in Gaza before they can offer their services to it. The U.S. administration is considering a plan that would use Iranian territory to supply U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan, American officials said. High-level meetings between Iranian and American officials are said to have taken place in Europe. The current supply route into Afghanistan that runs through Pakistan is so insecure that the Pakistani trucking companies halted deliveries late last year because neither the trucks nor the drivers were secure. The arrangements make sense despite the animosity between the two countries. Iran has its own strategic interests in Afghanistan and has always been hostile to the Taliban and al-Qaeda. In Israel, the Likud party, led by Israeli Prime Minister-designate Benjamin Netanyahu, signed a coalition agreement with the far-right Yisrael Betanu party, whose controversial leader, Avigdor Lieberman, will become Israel's next foreign minister. Under the deal, Yisrael Betanu, Israel's third-largest party after last month's elections, received another four ministerial portfolios. Likud negotiators hope to wrap up talks with four other religious and right-wing parties and present a narrow government by the end of this week. Mr. Netanyahu has criticized the U.S.-sponsored peace talks aimed at establishing a Palestinian state. He also favors expanding West Bank Jewish settlements. El Salvador is the latest country in the Americas to swing left. Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front, FMLN, a former rebel group-turned-political party, won last Sunday's presidential elections by a narrow margin. The FMLN win is the first defeat for the conservatives since the country's 12-year civil war in which 75,000 people were killed. Earlier in the January parliamentary elections, the FMLN also won the most seats. The president-elect, Mauricio Funes, is a journalist who has worked for the CNN Spanish television channel and a commercial station in the capital, San Salvador, before coming a host of one of the country's most popular television shows. Liberal MP Erwin Kotler recently embarked on a self-appointed diplomatic offensive against Iran. He made public a document which argues that Iran poses a genocidal and existential threat to Israel and recommends international sanctions against Iran, travel bans against Iranian leaders, suspension of Iran's rights and privileges at the UN, and other legal actions. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, however, found that in order to make his case, Mr. Kotler relied on non-literal translations of statements made in Farsi, used questionable and highly partial sources, such as lobby groups. They claim Kotler also concealed important context for statements made by Iranian leaders and distorted facts in order to advance his claims. And those were the alert headlines.
And now for Around the Left in 7 Days. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in 7 Days. Chris Arsenault speaks on his new book, Blowback, A Canadian History of Agent Orange and the War at Home, published by Fernwood. The book tells the story of the military and economic currents that allowed the deadly dioxin Agent Orange to be sprayed around New Brunswick. Arsenal speaks at the University of British Columbia on March 19th and at the University of Victoria on March 24th. On Friday, March 20th, the Toronto-Palestine Film Festival presents the runner-up and winner of the 2008 Audience Choice Award as a fundraiser for the 2009 festival. Salt of the Sea screens at 7 p.m., Slingshot Hip Hop at 9, and both play at the Blur Cinema. Tickets are $10 per film and $7 for students, seniors, and unwaged. Saturday, March 21st, is the International Day for the Elimination of Racism. This year, No One is Illegal Vancouver hosts an evening of artists, speakers, and performers. The event, Ignite Resistance, Canadian Multiculturalism is Not Enough, will challenge local and global racism that continues to exist. On Thursday, March 26th, there's a Vancouver tribute to economist Mel Watkins, hosted by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and Simon Fraser University's Centre for Canadian Studies. Speakers will pay tribute to Watkins' progressive legacy, and Watkins will also speak. Admission is free. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in 7 Days. Mr. Kawaja is the first person to be sentenced under Canada's post-9-11 terrorism laws. On March the 12th, he was ordered to serve ten and a half years in prison, with no eligibility for parole for five years. Richard Fiddler is a member of the Socialist Project in Ottawa and maintains the blog Life on the Left. Richard lives in Ottawa, where we reached him. Hi Richard, welcome to Alert Radio. Hello. Thanks for spending some time with us. You're welcome. And we're going to get right into it in regards to this particular case. Tell us first off about Mr. Kawaja. First off, who is he and what was he found guilty of? Well, he um, was a software developer here in Ottawa. And uh, he was arrested about well over five years ago now uh, and charged with a variety of offenses. The most serious ones were that he were alleged that he had been involved with a group of um, other Muslim males in England who um, have subsequently been convicted and sentenced to life sentences for um, an alleged plot to commit terrorist offenses in England itself. Um, and he was charged with um, a number of lesser offenses in relation to the anti-terror legislation that was rushed through Parliament in the wake of the 9-11 incidents. Um, Now, he was acquitted last fall, late October. After a relatively short trial, he was acquitted of the major charges uh, of connection with the actual plot in England. Right. Although it was um, admitted by his defense that he had, in fact, known some of the people who were involved in that. But there was no evidence whatsoever from extensive uh, hundreds of hours of wiretap evidence and so on that was entered by the police uh, and not denied by him. Um, there was no evidence whatsoever that he had had any knowledge of the um, alleged plot in England. And so was there anything notable in regards to this judge's ruling? I mean, first he was found guilty and then he was acquitted? Yeah, well, he was acquitted on those charges, but he was convicted of having uh, developed an electronic device called it the Hi-Fi Digimonster, which he had developed um, at their request in England. He he, um, has some expertise in this area. Um, The defense, he did not testify himself, and of course that's his right. No no accused has to to, uh, testify at his own trial. but the defense argument was that he had thought he was developing this for subsequent use in Afghanistan 
um, as a sort of a trigger for an improvised explosive device, the kinds of things that are used in the roadside bombs that, of course, have been rather effective on the occupation forces. Right. And um, he did this because he believed that the occupation of Afghanistan was, uh, was uh, wrong and that he wanted to uh, solidarize and express his support for, his active, active support for the uh, uh, resistance in Afghanistan. So the judge rejected that. Okay. Um, on the grounds that, or I should say that he pleaded, by the way, that there, there's an exemption in the anti-terror legislation in Canada. These are the, the Anti-Terrorism Act actually imp- placed provisions in the criminal code um, defining the crime of terrorist activity and, and so on. Um, there is a defense in that for um, acts that are committed in the course of a conventional war or uh, a, a war uh, using... Um, uh, you know, uh, the kinds of uh, a war-type situation. And, of course, that's intended primarily, as we know, to exempt uh, Canadian soldiers from uh, a conviction under the anti-terror legislation. Now, he um, tried to use that defense, and that was rejected by the judge. The judge uh, basically uh, argued in his his, um, uh, conviction ruling that... um, the war in Afghanistan was a legitimate war, uh, and that resistance to it was illegal under Canadian law, and in fact was a violation of the anti-terror legislation. Okay. So, in effect, uh, he he said that the um, that uh, engagement in active support for the resistance in Afghanistan could be defined as uh, engagement in anti in terrorist uh, activity by Canadian law. And on those grounds, he um, not just rejected um, Kawaja's defense, but he, of course, convicted him on the minor charges, or the lesser charges, rather, of um, constructing a, a, a device which would be used for, an anti, for, a, for a terrorist activity. And so after the judge's ruling, what's been the reaction uh, to this particular sentence that he's been given? Well, the, the, I would say the media, of course, was pretty keen on the conviction, and I don't remember any particular opposition being expressed uh, in, the, in the mass media. Um, I, I noticed at the time that there was very little attention paid to this aspect, really almost no attention was paid to the judge's reasoning on this. The judge had invoked in support of his argument that the Afghan resistance was terrorist, um, a United Nations security resolution, which had sort of ex post facto endorsed the NATO intervention um, and the, the Canadian and American and British intervention, other uh, countries in NATO and so on, uh, in Afghanistan. And um, on that ground, he said, well, it's, it's legitimate under international law, though it was just the Security Council, of course, which is dominated by the major uh, Western powers. Um, and, 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 and I think the, the, the fact that he basically extended this then to any sort of support for uh, active support for the resistance in Afghanistan suggested quite well actually it was more than a suggestion it was a clear statement that this could be considered um, to fall within the ambit of the anti-terror legislation in Canada that tended to get really ignored in the in the mass media and let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the anti-terror legislation and our government's track record of arresting conviction. Uh, what can you tell us about it quickly? Well, it's, it's quite repressive. It's, uh, <laughs> it lays down um, some pretty uh, broad, sweeping definitions of uh, what constitutes terrorist activity um, around, on basis that on uh, acts that are committed for ideological purposes and so on and so on. But there was one feature of the act which had a sunset clause when it was originally adopted in early 2002. And what was that? And that was um, provisions which allowed for preventive arrest of suspected terrorists, that is, suspected by the police. Right. Um, and um, provisions that would compel witnesses to testify before a judge um, <clears throat> in any proceeding subsequent to that. Um, now, these provisions were considered so draconian when they were adopted, even in the immediate wake of 9-11, that the government was, uh, the liberal government of the day um, agreed to place a sunset provision in there, so they elapsed after five years. Um, now, as, when the time came, of course, 
we were in a minority government situation. Um, the parliamentary committee looking at this, the liberals and conservatives on that committee, um, supported uh, renewing the um, uh, provisions. Um, but they lapsed because, I, as I recall, Stéphane Dion, who was then a liberal leader, decided that he wouldn't support it. And okay. so it never came to a, a, a vote in Parliament. Um, and now, interestingly enough, on March the 12th, the day that Mr. Kawaja was sentenced, um, the, par- the, the uh, Conservative government introduced a bill, C-19, which reintroduces these particularly objectionable um, or repressive aspects uh, back into the anti-terror legislation. And that bill has now gone through first reading and, of course, will now go to committee and uh, subsequent debate in in the House of Commons and the Senate. And so that's what I was just going to ask you, uh, Richard. Is there an organized opposition to this particular bill? I haven't seen any at this point. Um, Well, no, I shouldn't say that. It's organized opposition. I, I don't know. Um, there have been comments in the press. Uh, the big question, I think, is whether the Liberals are going to support it, um, because the Conservatives by themselves cannot make it carry. And what's your? Uh, the Bloc is against it, okay. and the NDP is probably against it. I haven't seen a statement. I looked for a statement the other day from them on the on the uh, the bill, but I haven't seen any. However, um, I did notice a statement by Michael Byers, who's um, a West Coast uh, law professor who was a candidate for the NDP in the last federal election, although he wasn't uh, elected. Right. And he said there was no need, in his view, for such uh, legislation. I suspect the NDP, which opposed it in the past, um, will uh, oppose it now. That means then that the ball is thrown into the liberal court, and we know that there are many prominent liberals who want to see the enactment of such legislation. I do not know where Ignatieff stands right. on this. If you were to take a guess, Richard? <laughs> if I was to guess, I think he'd be tempted to support it. Okay. For one thing, I don't think he wants to support, the, he wants to defeat the conservatives on an issue like that, uh, even if his own inclination was against it. But of course, Michael Ignatieff has been in the war camp and, and was, in fact, one of the uh, liberals, a uh, minority of liberals, who voted um, some time ago for an extension of the uh, military intervention in Afghanistan. Well, thank you so much, Richard, uh, for enlightening us and our listeners on this particular bill, on this particular case with Mr. Kawaja. And you have written an article on this particular case that can be found on the Canadian Dimension website at www.canadiandimension.com. And we will see... What unfolds, won't we? I mean, if it was yeah. just instituted March 12th? Yes, I well, urge your listeners to uh, read the uh, article and also to try to get involved in some organized opposition to the new legislation. Well, you've put <laughs> the word out there, and uh, I'm sure people are rallying uh, at this moment. So thank you again. And that was Richard Fiddler in Ottawa. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm joined now by Brian Evans, who is an associate professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University in Toronto. He's speaking to us from his office. Welcome to Alert Radio, Professor Evans. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. Now, we're talking to you today because Ontario is probably the worst hit province in the country when in regards to the economic crisis, especially considering the auto manufacturing sector. What shape was Ontario in before the crisis, and how bad is it today? Well, things have changed dramatically in a very short period of time. And what's kind of frightening is how quickly uh, things have, have uh, eroded uh, and, and gone south. Uh, you know, you only have to go back uh, uh, four months, and, and the number of, of jobs lost in, in Ontario uh, is about 160,000, actually a little over 160,000, which is more than half of all jobs lost in Canada in that period of time. And clearly a big chunk of that is in the manufacturing sector, uh, auto sector in particular, which is getting a lot of uh, 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 headlines right now. And if you look at the unemployment rate, again, those numbers become quite frightening. In 2008, about 6.5% of Ontario workers were unemployed. 
But here we are in March, and that number has already jumped to 8.7%, and the projection is that a year from now, it'll be, be approaching 11%. Well, uh, can you tell us then the legacy of this crisis uh, and, and the, mo- the years after, uh, after next year? And- yeah, well, <laughs> nobody can predict the future. Uh, but if we look at other uh, major economic downturns, uh, there are a few things that we can um, speculate. And, and already things are beginning to, uh, to firm up in that direction. When we look at what uh, uh, auto workers are being called upon to give up, and really what I'm uh, uh, beginning to be concerned about, as, as other people are, uh, is, is that we're going to see a very dramatic uh, erosion in the quality of employment, uh, quality being measured by the actual level of hourly wage or salary, uh, whether the jobs will be uh, relatively permanent, will they be part-time, will it be short-term contract, that kind of thing. And we have uh, a lot of history to go back on and and we can begin speculating that uh, going forward, we're going to be looking at a very, very serious employment uh, situation. You know, the data showed that from 1975 to about 1995-2000, the incomes of Canadians were flatlined for a 25-year period. And going forward, we're looking at not only a flatline, but a decline in uh, employment incomes. So the future, the future is not looking um, all that great. Will Ontario ever be the same? No, no. Uh, the, the manufacturing sector has taken a huge hit. Uh, that, that is where you found uh, uh, a large number of high-quality jobs, high-quality by every definition. Uh, those high-quality jobs help pay for all kinds of public services. Um, that'll be much, much more difficult going forward. Uh, and by that, I mean going forward two, three, four, or five years, and maybe maybe indefinitely. Uh, what you say reflects uh, much of what's in the documentary Capitalism Hits the Fan, which we covered recently on Alert. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about the political parties in Ontario. Can you discuss Premier Dalton McGuinty, leader of the uh, provincial Liberals, and tell us what your thoughts are on his policies uh, in dealing with the economic crisis? Well, uh, like a lot of uh, sitting governments, uh, in North America and, and obviously beyond, um, I think governments, the political and economic elites here and everywhere, um, have been taken by surprise at how quickly uh, the, uh, the general economic conditions have deteriorated. And uh, the McGuinty government is no, no exception. Uh, they, they, they've really kind of been herky-jerky uh, in their approach. You know, if we look at their budget from a year ago, they, they initiated a program of uh, $1.5 billion, uh, for training and, and skills upgrading. Well, okay, fine, that was before the economy really hit the skids, uh, but now we have to begin asking uh, training for what, which was, again, a question back in the 1990s. Um, they have thrown in, uh, committed $3.3 billion to the auto sector, on top of many hundreds of millions before that, uh, for their uh, much-lauded uh, uh, auto strategy. But again, uh, there are very, very few strings attached. Uh, the, the auto industry is, is in freefall. Uh, and where, where will all of that ultimately end up? Communities have no control, no input. Workers have no control, no input uh, on, on how to go forward. So uh, it's very, very difficult uh, uh, to see anything uh, positive. And on top of that, going right back to the uh, election of the McGuinty government in 2003, they remained committed uh, to the key principles of the common sense revolution, most particularly not to raise taxes. Consequently, and they benefited from a you know, relatively healthy economy, they were able to reinvest in a number of areas, education, healthcare being key examples. But when the economy began to turn, turn south, that meant that the, the level of public finances began to erode and erode very dramatically. What they're going to do going forward, uh, very difficult to say, except that we're going to have to look at uh, cutting public services. 
Well, now let's talk about the other parties in uh, Ontario, both whom have held the reins previously. Let's start with uh, the PCs. There's a change in leadership in uh, both the opposition parties. John Tory has resigned as the leader of the PCs, and uh, their leadership convention is coming up soon. Let's, let's start with uh, the PCs. Can you tell us why he resigned and who might replace him? Well, um, I think it's pretty well known why he resigned. <laughs> he he uh, lost his attempt to win uh, a downtown Toronto seat in the uh, 2007 general election, and uh, a uh, an incumbent member from rural Ontario uh, gave up her seat for him to run in a by-election. Now, she, uh, the incumbent MPP, had won in the general election by a margin of over 10,000 votes, a very comfortable victory by any definition. Uh, Mr. Tory went into the by-election and lost by more than 900. In other words, he took a 10,000-vote uh, margin of comfort and turned it into defeat. Uh, for him to stay on after two consecutive uh, electoral defeats, very, very uh, difficult, especially in the context when the right wing of the party never felt comfortable with him. He was simply too much of the old uh, big blue machine, red Tory uh, party of, of the Bill Davis era. And, and they never did feel comfortable with him. And his re- likely replacement? Well, all the speculation is, and I agree with it, is that a young MPP from the Niagara region, uh, a former Mike Harris cabinet minister by the name of Tim Hudak, uh, will, will be the next leader. Uh, in fact, there's uh, reporting today that Premier Mike Harris has come out of hibernation and is very actively uh, working for Tim Hudak. Moving on to the NDP, um, the... Uh Andrea Horwith is, has now been selected as their new leader. Can you tell us a bit uh, about her? Well, Andrea, it's, it's quite remarkable and laudatory, noteworthy, uh, that for the first time a woman has become leader of the Ontario New Democratic Party. Uh, she, she comes from very proud working-class Hamilton roots, uh, elected to uh, Hamilton Council, I believe, four times, and uh, she... Uh, uh, at a rhetorical level, you know, ran a, a fairly um, uh, left campaign, pro-labor campaign. In fact, by and large, uh, she was the, the candidate of uh, organized labor. That's not universally true, but largely. And uh, she, she, you know, spoke out very clearly about how the economic crisis is, is destroying working families, working communities, uh, and, and in all of that, uh, uh, it, it, it sounded very encouraging. However... Uh, when pushed on details, uh, there aren't a lot there. Uh, she seems to be committed to um, ensuring the NDP will be an electoral party, an electoral party alone, uh, not a campaigning party. Uh, she was reluctant to talk about any kind of uh, detail on policy. Uh, so I'm going to be generous and say we have to give her a bit of time to determine what direction she'll take the party. But, but to date, and it's, it's a little thin, but to date... Um, I wouldn't say she's going to drag the party to uh, uh, to the left. Well, thank you very much, Brian, for your perspective on the political landscape in Ontario and uh, your information about the economic crisis. Um, we will certainly be keeping our eyes on Canada's most populous province. So we will talking to you again soon here on Alert. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Rosenfeld is a former educator in the Canadian Automobile Workers Education Department and now teaches labor studies at McMaster University. Welcome to Alert Radio, Herman. Well, thank you. Glad to be there. Good. Uh, Again, we're going to be getting right into talking about the auto industry, uh, which obviously you're an expert on. So what is the situation today, Herman, with respect to government bailouts and the auto industry? Well, it's really not a bailout. uh, These are loan guarantees in the sense that uh, the, the auto companies are, uh, are very short of cash, ready cash, okay. because of the combination of two crises together, the credit crunch, which is not giving credit to anyone, 
include buyers or, 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 or these companies, which need to have a certain amount of cash on hand. <clears throat> and secondly, it, it intervenes in an ongoing crisis uh, having to do with uh, other issues that was going on anyway. But what, what's happened is, is that the, uh, General Motors uh, and Chrysler have asked the U.S. government, uh, General Motors asked for $30 billion loans and has received about 13.4 so far, and Chrysler has asked for $9 billion and it's received $4 billion. Uh, and uh, in Canada, they, uh, they've, uh, uh, they've asked for a total of, uh, um, General Motors has asked for a total of $7 billion. It's, it's supposed to receive $3 billion, and Chrysler has it's been promised $3 billion, and uh, Chrysler has asked for some more, and, and it's, been, it's been promised $1 billion. And uh, the American uh, parents have received the money, I believe, whereas in Canada it's contingent upon them getting approval. In both, actually, theoretically, uh, the U.S. has to give its approval. The U.S. government has to give it their approval by March 31st, uh, and there are certain the condi- there are conditions. Okay. Those conditions have to do with uh, sort of they have to give reports on how they're going to uh, how they're going to cut their own costs and restructure, uh, and they've submitted those in writing. And secondly, they, uh, um, the, the the auto co- the, the the unions actually as a condition of this, the unions have to. Uh, Match the cuts that match the labor costs of the non-union transplants. That is the uh, the, the, the plants that are owned uh, by foreign companies, Japanese and, uh, and Europeans and the American. Okay, so let's move on to something like uh, where I mean we're saying loan guarantees, bailouts. Um, now the government has been insisting that there will be no bailouts without auto workers giving concessions to bring down labor costs. So let's review that. What concessions have been offered by CAW? Well. Actually, the, uh, this was the demand of, of, of the U.S. government to start the whole process. And the Canadian government being conservative, the federal government being conservative, obviously, they, uh, they, they, were, they were very happy with that. Well, they said that they have to match, the, that, the, that the American unions have to match the costs of the, of the transplants, which are non-unionized. And the CAW has said that it will match the costs of the parent companies in the U.S., uh, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler, and I just for a side, Ford hasn't asked for anything because it uh, it, uh, it it took out a massive loan. It, it mortgaged everything and took out a massive loan to pay for its its uh, its its financial needs, its, its cash needs. But what happened is that they've had to negotiate what that means in practice. The companies, uh, the unions. So the okay. CAW has negotiated uh, as it usually does. It, it chooses a target okay. and it, it establishes a pattern. It moves on to others, and. Uh, it's, it has negotiated uh, um, an, ag- an, ag- an agreement with General Motors already. And uh, <clears throat> the terms of that agreement are that uh, it, it freezes, its, uh, it freezes its, the, the wage, uh, wage gains that it made uh, in, in the previous agreement. It, uh, it adds an extra year to, to that agreement, and it adds a whole series of other cuts and co-pays. It cuts a week, an, an extra week of, uh, of vacation that the workers had. The vacation is really important. It's called the schedule paid absence, and it's canceled. Okay. Um, it's uh, frozen the cola. It's frozen the cola on the, pen, uh, co- the cost of living on pensions, and it's added a series of copays on benefits. So um, uh, they'll have to pay over three hundred dollars a year, both retirees and active workers, retirees under under sixty five, to actually fund this the the fund their their their, their benefits. Okay. And, uh, if you're over sixty five, it's less, but you still have to pay it, and that's going to be taken off of pe- people's checks. In a uh, in uh, on a monthly basis, so those are more or less the uh, the concessions. Okay, and so Herman, let's assume the bailouts happen, okay, and the union concessions happen. Will the industry actually be saved from bankruptcy, um, and will the jobs in the industry be saved? Well, there's a number of questions there. First of all, there will be a radical cut in jobs as part of the the restructuring the companies are doing. GM, for example, promised to cut three of eight of its brands, and will cut a forty thousand jobs globally by the end of 2009, 20,000 American jobs, and uh, a certain number of Canadian jobs, too. They, they, they say they have a plan to cut its Canadian workforce by 7,000 by 2010. Um, will, it mean the end of, will it mean the end of the crisis? Well, not necessarily. The, this crisis, has, as I mentioned, has, is, is like a nested crisis. One of them has to do with the, uh, the credit crunch. And as long as people aren't buying cars, Right. And, uh, uh, and, the, and the companies can't get, uh, this is, that's why they went to the government, because they couldn't get credit on private markets. Okay. As long as people aren't buying cars, then they're going to still have problems in terms of paying for things. 
Okay. Um, so that's one level of, of problems. The second is that over time, there's a, there's a number of other reasons why this happened. One is overcapacity in the sense that there's too many companies producing too many cars, both in and outside of Canada, for the, uh, outside of North America, for the North American market. <laughs> that will have to be regulated in some way. If it is not regulated, then, then uh, somebody's going to be losing out because the market is, 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 isn't high enough for that. So that's one set of problems. And the second is what they call legacy costs in the sense that uh, the, the, the transplants have younger workforces. They've only been here since the, the mid-1980s uh, or the late 1980s. And they've, like Toyota, for example, only has about 300 retirees in all of the, in the United States, whereas General Motors has four retirees for every active worker in the United States. Right. That has to be addressed in some way, because unless the companies have oodles of profits coming in, and the stock markets in which they invest the pension, you know, the money for pension funds are, 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 are moving up, then they won't be able to pay those pensions. And that uh, that is a big huge. That's that's one of the main reasons why the, the the transplants are not, you know, are not in danger of going out of business. Where Jonah Motors, Motors, Ford, and Chrysler might. So I'm not sure unless the market picks up dramatically, and they radically change how much they're producing, which they won't. Uh, uh, there'll be problems in the future. And so, you know, yes or no? Will the government money and the union concessions do any good? Well, the union concessions have nothing to do with quote unquote doing any good. The cost, labor costs are only 7% of the car. There's, there's really no reason for any union concession. It's only part uh, of, uh, of, 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 of a generalized attack on, on, on labor, which, which is part and parcel of this entire neoliberal period we're coming out of. Okay. It's continuing. Okay. And it's counterproductive in the sense that the, if people have less money, they're going to buy less, and so this crisis is going to continue. So um, nothing the union does will contribute to these companies coming out. It's simply in order to be able to uh, uh, respond to uh, the demands of the American government. Had the labor movement in the United States and Canada been strong, uh, strong enough, uh, they wouldn't be able to make that demand because it's not financially necessary. It doesn't make any sense. And so we're going to end it off by, I just want your opinion on, um, in regards to a better alternative, Herman, is there a better alternative to the bailouts and concessions that would possibly, you know, protect the jobs and communities better? Well, yeah, I, th- I think, but they're fairly, fairly radical compared to what we have now. Uh, you'd have to, first of all, I think one of the things is, is dealing with the so-called privatized welfare state, the idea that private people's pensions are dependent on what they can negotiate with an individual employer, their benefits, things like uh, dental care, uh, pharmacare, um, um, all those things, uh, drug plan, all those things, are, are these workers are dependent upon it from these companies. That should be nationalized and taken on so you'd have national, strong national programs like we have Medicare in both the United States and Canada, particularly the United States, you need to have that, and that would take that away from competition. Uh, secondly, I think that you have to nationalize the banks so that uh, the banks could serve credit to, to, you know, you can use them for the kind of credit you need instead of uh, right now they're, they're, they're all seized up. I think that you have to severely regulate the industry in terms of how much is being produced by whom and how many plants there are here. Right. And some people are arguing for nationalizing the industry along with uh, energy in order to be able to change uh, a lot of the overcapacity to, to actually producing uh, other kinds of transportation that people need. Other people are calling for, and I think it's an excellent idea, of, of the places that are going to be closed down because of the excess capacity, uh, nationalizing, forming a, a, a crown corporation and having those places that, like, the plants that are closed, the GM plants are going to be, extra plants are going to be closed down, the extra jobs are going to lose, um, have that be used to produce environmentally friendly technologies like uh, windmills and all that kind of stuff. But uh, those things, I think, are really necessary, particularly uh, the big ones around the, the privatized, uh, the private welfare um, component, uh, pensions, because those things are not going to be resolved in the short run. Herman, is there any sign that CAW is going to be able to propose um any reforms uh, that you've been talking about today? In the short run, no. But uh, you never know how these guys are going to develop. They're, they are, they're really in a terrible position around this. What they're concentrating on in terms of their demands are uh, calling on the, on, the, on the companies to at least maintain a footprint in Canada, a certain percentage of their production. Right. And right now you know they're fighting with Chrysler over this. Because Chrysler's even threatening, saying that the concessions of GM weren't good enough. Um, and uh, demands around employment insurance and uh, extending it, and also uh, uh, sever- extending severance packages, because a lot of the, 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 the ser- um, supplier plants are closing, and this, they don't have those, uh, the, the, those, those rights. Um, in order to be able to develop some of these, they have to sort of broaden their outlook, and uh, 
they very much don't have that broad outlook yet. It's hard to say that they never will. We don't know. I mean, things like they're calling for, uh, uh, you know, uh, content rules, but they're not pushing very hard for it. And most of the solutions they have are in partnership with the corporations, okay. which, uh, which is totally inimical to all these things I'm calling for. So I guess it's a waiting game. We see what well, happens. We'll, we'll have to see how that. It depends if there's if there's fight back which develops and uh, it pushes them forward. You never know because uh, over over the years they've come up with some very imaginative ideas and at certain times they're 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 they're, they're stronger on those than others. Well, thanks again, Herman. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Okay, and that was Herman Rosenfeld, a teacher of labor studies at McMaster University. You're listening to Music is the Weapon. I'm André Clément. The word Filani in the Zosa language of South Africa means be healthy. Filani is also the name of a community-based child and nutrition organization operating in the townships and squatter communities of Cape Town, where poverty, unemployment, and violence dominate. Now, several years back, a group of women healthcare workers known as the Mothers formed a choir in order to spread their message of health and nutrition. Today on Music is the Weapon, we'll be featuring an album entitled The Mothers, Township Sessions. The album is a rather interesting and unique musical collaboration between these Cape Town healthcare workers and a cast of international artists and DJs. And it's all for a good cause. Here is the first song on the album, which was produced by acclaimed audiophile Nitin Sani. This one is entitled Milk. Thank you. 
you are listening to Music is the Weapon. Today, we are featuring the album entitled Township Sessions by The Mothers, a choir group formed by women healthcare workers in Cape Town, South Africa, working for an organization called Filani. Here is what Archbishop Desmond Tutu had to say about this organization and the release of this musical collaboration. Food feeds the body. Music feeds the soul. The Filani Nutrition Project has changed the lives of thousands of women and children. Filani has provided life and hope. I am thrilled to endorse this wonderful CD and its vibrant message of joy and new beginnings in the face of adversity. Need we say more? Let's listen to our next selection, shall we? This is Speak For Me, produced by British Ensemble, The Soul Savers. been listening to The Mothers, Township Sessions, a musical collaboration of the Fulani Healthcare Workers Choir and international artists and DJs. Proceeds from the sale of this CD enables the Fulani Project to continue its work and expand its efforts. For the last 28 years, 
Fellani has shown its sustainability by maintaining and expanding its programs. Not a small feat, considering the turbulent social and political climate, including apartheid in South Africa. For more information on this organization and info on how to purchase this CD, go to www.filanimothers.com. That's Filani Mothers, P-H-I-L-A-N-I-M-O-T-H-E-R-S. This is the last song from this week's profile. Here is Home, produced by Layo and Bushwhacker. For Music is the Weapon, I'm André Clément. <laughs> That's it for Alert for this week of March 19th, 2009. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alvey. Make sure to stay tuned for next week for more intriguing conversation. Thanks, as usual, to all the people that helped make Alert happen. Nash Soonwalla for the headlines. Karen McIntosh for Around the Left in Seven Days. André Clément for Music is the Weapon. Technical producer Tommy Allen. And our executive producer, Saigonic. Alert Radio is broadcast on the Canadian Dimension National Radio Network. For today's episode, you can click on www.rabble.ca or go to the Canadian Dimension website for past shows as well as today's show at www.canadiandimension.com.